in my poetry, what I've tried to do and consciously is to stress the fact that these times are not just the individual times, but also the ones that perhaps are fragmentary and very tiny and at times invisible within the specific and within the individual. So for us, we own time, but also there are certain times that we can't own. When I arrived in this place, the legal time did not belong to me. The way I was made to wait, in fact, and this is very, very passive. And yet my response was to recount time, to take it from the camp and bring it to the UK and see whether these different varied times can start a conversation. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate of Migrations, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. In this season on waiting, the camp is a recurrent figure and point of reference. The camp haunts conversations about limbo in border spaces because so many border crossers have spent or will spend time in a camp, perhaps one built and managed by a government, international organization, or NGO, or an improvised camp set up by people in transit in an abandoned building in a major city, or maybe in the woods near a national border. The camp is a familiar space in the public imagination, though it can indicate many different kinds of sites and a range of living conditions. When we hear the word refugee, we often picture a camp. Maybe we have a kind of generic image in mind of people gathered outside a row of tents with UNHCR written across them, or makeshift structures like the ones at the camp known as the jungle in Calais, France. Recently, camps have appeared in news coverage of people fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, setting up in temporary shelters in neighboring Poland and as far away as camps at the U.S.-Mexico border. Or maybe we have a very personal image in mind from our own memory or family history. So when we think about camps, we have this visual archive, but as we'll hear in our conversation today, life in the camp and the ways the camp functions in a world shaped by displacement and mobility are not just visual or spatial questions, they are also matters of time. The camp as a site of waiting, of urgent need and uncertain futures, the camp as a site shaped by multiple temporalities. Or as Yusuf Kasmia writes, the camp is time and time is the camp. In this episode, you'll hear Yusuf read several poems from his award-winning collection, Writing the Camp, which came out in 2021 with Broken Sleep Books. These poems really guide our conversation on displacement, border crossing, and time, and offer a critical perspective on refugee camps. Also joining is Sharam Kosravi, who has published extensively on the topic of waiting and border temporalities, and how holding people in precarity serves the needs of the state and the constant need for cheap and exploitable labor. And also joining us is Elena fidian Kasmia, whose work brings decolonial perspectives to displacement and mobilities and prompts us to engage with histories of displacement as crucial to understanding the present. You'll see how their work raises urgent questions about the different temporalities at play in border crossing. 
This conversation challenges us to recognize the camp and refugees not as peripheral to normal life, but as key to understanding our world. I continue to be so moved by Yusuf's poems and by the scholarly and creative work of our three guests. And so it's really wonderful to speak with these scholars, thinkers, and writers together for an episode that is part poetry reading, part conversation about the camp in terms of waiting, memory, and return. If you'd like to read along, you can find the poems and a transcript on migrations.cornell.edu podcast. So to start, I'll ask you each to introduce yourselves. Um, and let's start with Yusuf. Um, hi, my, my name is, uh, is Yusuf Mustafa Qasmi. I'm a translator and poet, currently based at Oxford, where I'm also completing my doctorate uh, uh, in the field of um, English language and literature. The topic of my thesis revolves around, in fact, what I call loosely refugee writing, where I explore and examine critically the thematics of time, containment, and the archive in, in English and Arabic. I'm also the, the editor of, uh, um, of a creative encounters uh, in the uh, Journal of Migration, um, of Migration and Society. Um, and um, I'm also the writer in residence uh, of, of refugee hosts, but I also co-lead the Badawi Lab as part of, uh, of the Imagining Futures project. I'm Elena Fidian Kasmia, and I'm Professor of Migration and Refugee Studies at University College London, where I am co-director of the Migration Research Unit and director of the Institute of Advanced Studies Refuge in a Moving World Interdisciplinary Research Network. I'm leading a number of research projects examining experiences of and responses to displacement from the perspective of local communities um, across Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey, who have been hosting refugees from Syria um, since 2011, um, in addition to another project looking at so-called southern responses to displacement um, across but also beyond the Middle East and North Africa. And with Yusuf, I am co-lead of the Badawi Camp Lab as part of the Imagining Futures um, research project, um, in addition to being co-editor of the Migration and Society Journal. Thank you. And Sharam. My name is Sharam Khosravi. I'm an anthropologist. I, um, I'm Iranian um, and uh, work at Stockholm University. I have been working on precarity um, of, uh, of people uh, in Iran, but also uh, have been working on border studies, um, uh, deportation um, and documentedness. Uh, and recently have been um, thinking about waiting and um, and this thinking has resulted in some publications and uh, movies. Uh, I, I did a, I made a movie with uh, my friend uh, Dagmawi Imer who is um, Ethiopian Italian filmmaker um, 
uh, so it's on YouTube. Um, so and also uh, uh, acted as as a kind of uh, curator uh, for for this publication on waiting, which is a combination of uh, art, uh, poetry, and um, and uh, other other kinds of um, um, writings about uh, waiting. Um, most of them is is in relation to borders. Thanks, and I should also say that also the film that you made, Waiting with Dagmar Weimer, is I, I think quite an incredible film, and um, we will link to all of these in the show notes, so um, so you can all see it after two if you haven't had the chance to view it yet. Um, thanks, um, Yusuf. I would invite you to open our conversation with a couple of poems. And I wonder also if you wanna situate the book for us a little bit for people who may not have um, seen it or read it yet. Thank you. And, um, uh, and the title of this poem, The Camp is Time. Who writes the camp and what is it that ought to be written in a time where the plurality of lives has it traversed the place itself to become its own time. How will the camp stir at itself in the coming time, look itself in the eye, the eye of time, the coming that is continually pending, but with a face, a human or otherwise, that is defaced. The camp is a time more than it is a place. Upon and above its curves, time remembers its lapses to the extent that it is its time. The one whose time is one, that it preys on a body that is yet to be born. In a crucifying time, neither it nor we can recognize the crucified. God incinerate the camp, see the dialect. God incinerate the camp, save the dialect. The incinerator of time is the camp. What is it that makes a site worth a sighting when the seer can use his eyes alone for an enormity that no eyes can actually see? Is it the camp? Or is it its time that should be returned to its body to reclaim its body as a dead thing with multiple previous lives and none? I write for it knowing that this is the last time that I write for it. Herein, the time is last and the last. It may belong to a no beginning, no end, but what it definitely has is its camp. The camp is time, and time is the camp. The possessive is what possesses the guilt that it transcends all guilt, and yet coexists with itself until it becomes an event in its own guilt. But is it? Is it my camp? In time, the mask takes off its mask. The foot that it threats is also time. In time, we impregnate time with its time. 
time gives birth to nothing, the nothing that is raging nearby is our only time. Time, tell us where your private parts are. In the camp, time is hung like the threads of a dried okra. So, <clears throat> in fact, perhaps talking about the, the book itself, what, um, which in itself is, is, uh, is a journey, is not in fact a journey away from the camp, but a journey into the camp. Even though I arrived in the UK as an asylum seeker, evolved into a refugee and then into a citizen, but returning to the camp because in it, I see in fact the progression of my time in a different place, but also to it, there are different times. And these times are the familial, the historical, the political, but also very violent times where things are never in fact stuck and things are always, are always happening. And that is why maybe the uh, Shahram did talk about, about waiting, something that is really fascinating is that waiting in the Arabic language, the language I speak as a, as a Palestinian refugee from Lebanon, is in fact attributed to seeing. So seeing and waiting coexist, but also return to the same root word, to the word that has to do with active seeing and active responding to what is happening around us. And I'm going to read another poem. And, and this poem is in fact, I would say fragmentary in nature because of how at times arrival cannot be demarcated and contained. And the title of this poem, in arrival, feet flutter like dying birds. We think sometimes that they came from countless directions, from dim colored borders, from the raging fire that devoured them in the beginning, from absence. Here they come again, so invite them over to our death. The refugee is the revenant of the face. O oh, refugee, feast upon the other to eat yourself. In arrival, feet flutter like dying birds. In the camp, time died so it could return home. This is about also Sadly, what we repatriate is the dead. And this is something that, so we return to a place when also not just the actual death, but the concept of death itself is dragging us towards what we call the original place. So I, I 
And Elena, of course, knows about this story. Once we were, Elena and myself, talking with my mother and my mother's, and of course, interviewing my mother or chatting with her about time in the camp, in Badawi camp in North Lebanon. And her main concern was, in fact, how we, when we move away from the camp, would be able to transfer our dead and how we take the cemeteries with us to other places. I think perhaps this is only an invitation to all of us here to ponder a bit about waiting actively. Thanks so much. These are really powerful poems and I, um... I want to sort of also just sit with them for a moment. Um, and thank you also for your for following up with those sort of invitations for further discussion about them too. Um, I'll just share a few of the lines and images that are really striking to me, maybe in connection with this um, connection that you've drawn our attention to between waiting and seeing. Um, that the first poem you read ends on this image of time hanging like, um, I have to turn to it to get the line right, but it's hanging, hanging up like dried okra. Um, makes me, and, and so time is, is appearing and disappearing in these poems in many different ways. And sometimes it's associated with these very specific objects. And sometimes it's almost more like a character. And I'm also especially struck by the turns that you make in these poems, which give a kind of circularity sometimes. So in the phrase, um, you say the camp is time and time is the camp. Um, and I wonder if we might even just wanna um, take that up for a minute, this sort of um, really direct relationship you're, you're putting out there between time and the camp. Um, I'm also very interested in, and I know um, Elena, you and, and Yusuf are both involved in this project called Imagining Futures. Um, I wonder if you want to comment on that. Thanks, Elena. Yeah, I, I think that what comes through very clearly in a careful and interdisciplinary approach to camps and to displacement is recognizing the simultaneities um, and the, um, the extent to which displacement to quote or following Deleuze and Guattari, it has no beginning or end, it is always in the middle. So I'll, I'll read Yusuf's line from his poem, Writing the Camp, which I think captures both this element of being in the middle, um, but also the extent to people are not just waiting and they're certainly not just waiting for external intervention. So I'll read this, the, these um, short lines. Refugees ask other refugees, who are we to come to you and who are you to come to us? Nobody answers. Palestinians, Syrians, Iraqis, Kurds share the camp, the same different camp, the camp of a camp. They have all come to re-originate the beginning with their own hands and feet. So such as the same different camp, the camp of a camp, it's a singular plural camp created through overlapping displacements with no beginning or end. It's always in the middle. And if we think of displacement through the framework of the rhizome, as, as I've been experimenting in a, in a couple of chapters on camps and more than camps, 
Um, and we see the, the rhizome as I quote from Deleuze and Guattari again, no beginning or end. It is always in the middle between things, interbeing, intermezzo. It is from this middle from which displacement is growing and from which it is overspilling, as it were. And if we see the camp as composed, quote, not of units, but of dimensions or rather directions in motion, we see camps and their residents as always already being in the middle of displacement, never at the beginning or at the end, and in a multiplicity and simultaneity of spaces and times of intersecting temporalities, materialities and spatialities. And here the past, the present and the future intersect and are mutually constitutive, rather than necessarily wanting to leave a space of transit it's very difficult to demarcate that space as transit alone. It is a point or a space of origin, beginning, um, transit, potentially um, departure um, simultaneously. Some people will be arriving, other people will be leaving. It is the same geographical location, but it has different significances and different directionalities of movement. Some people may want to leave. Some people may be desiring to return because camps are spaces of refuge, of destruction, of violence, but they're also spaces of belonging and of longing as well for many people. They are home camps. They are places that people return to for many different reasons, as Yusuf has written about, um, again, in, in, in numerous chapters and as, as well as in his own um, poetry. Um, so for one, one reason for returning is indeed to visit family members, but also to visit the cemetery, to visit the remains of the camp, the afterlife of those who lived there and who continue to endure and to keep the camp going and ensure that it's constantly in, in, in motion, it's constantly changing. It isn't static. It isn't a, solely a place of departure. It's a place where people remain, even if the camp disappears from the map, it remains through their remains. So when we're imagining the future, we need to recognize this intersecting or these intersecting temporalities in addition to the spatialities and, and the materialities. I was going to ask, who controls time in the camp? Or what controls time in the camp? But you've just given such a, a fascinating read of, as you say, these intersecting temporalities that um, that's maybe not the right question. And I think it's useful to sort of um, enunciate those different threads and temporalities that are actually coming together, that there are many active forces. Um, and so I, I don't want to pose this as a sort of, I don't mean to be simplistic, but I am thinking also about um, time as a, uh, a tool that is a political tool that's used to control people, contain people, um, to contain them in a particular moment, but also perhaps to hold their futures captive. Um, and then also, as you're talking about also in the, the care for loved ones and for the dead, um, time waiting time as a, an active practice. So also something that is about community and solidarity and, and collectively imagining futures. So it's, I think, um, perhaps one thing that the camp offers as a, as a lesson for us on time is a way of thinking about how these different kinds of power and, and forms of resistance and community, um, what kinds of spaces they create when they come together. Um, and that's, I think, really 
maybe important to highlight. I was thinking about sort of two directions for this kind of conversation as we focus at, at least at first on the camp itself. So thinking about what we learn about the camp when we focus on it in terms of time, um, but then also what experiences of the camp teach us about time and mobility. I, I wanna turn to Sharam also um, for a slightly different question about time. Sharam, you've worked also on the, the idea of stolen time and capital. And I wondered if we could also um, take that up and maybe then also try and connect that back to the camp. Um, so I'm thinking about stolen your work on stolen time as a strategy of capitalism and uh, a couple of different pieces where you talk about deportation as temporal and as related to the stealing of time as a way of also producing a workforce. And I wondered if you wanted to, to comment also on this relationship between time and mobility. Yes, we, when we, um, in modern societies, when we talk about time, we use same vocabularies um, that we use for, uh, for money or capital, you know, investing of time, waste of time, um, you know, how spending the time, um, all, all these, uh, means that that time has has a value yeah and uh, stolen time is in relation to deportation and expulsion um i became um curious to know what happens to uh to to that time people have used before deportation um to um, establish uh, relationships. I mean, also, you know, earning money, paying taxes, you know, all these things. But, but beyond that, also other, you know, form of capitals, cultural capitals, social capitals, you know, that they have uh, accumulated. And then they are deported suddenly, yeah? So what happened to all those forms of capital after deportation? Who took them? Yeah. Um, so that kind of uh, you know stealing is is very much. I mean, became more um, more um, explicit in 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 the context of United States that people are deported after you know twenty years. Yeah, that they have spent all their you know adult life maybe. Uh, in that country, and then suddenly they are, or, or you know, Windrush in, in UK, yeah, it's even, yeah, yeah horrible, yeah. Uh, but also in case of Palestinians, I mean, I mean, how, how the, the, the time of Palestinians uh, is stolen. I mean, every day at the Israeli checkpoints, what is happening is a stealing of time, yeah. Uh, is it when when Palestinians are delayed to go to work, delayed to go to visit their parents, they are delayed to go to school, they are delayed to go just, I don't know, doing something, everyday life, yeah? Every single day they are delayed, yeah? So if we put all these times delayed together, it's this huge amount of time, yeah? So, so what happened to that time? 
who took that time, you know, uh, and, and how, how we can calculate, um, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of, you know, emotions, um, 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 also in terms of life opportunity, uh, opportunities uh, when we go and, and think about all those uh, stolen times. I um, This comes up for me as an idea also because, uh, Yusuf, you also have a, a poem where you talk about um, time is not mine or time running away. And I wondered if there might be some kind of resonance there um, with the idea of stolen time as it appears in these multiple contexts in and outside of the, the camp. When I talk about my time or the time as not being mine, I also think about what Shahram uh, said about his stolen times, but we, in the English language as well, and in the Arabic language, and I'm sure that in, 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 in Persian as well, we have the, the equivalent of to kill time, to kill time, to dispose of it, but at times to kill actively, to kill very specific spots within this overarching time, or within maybe these pockets of time. And that is why, in fact, in my poetry, what I've tried to do, and consciously, is to stress the fact that these times are not just the individual times, but also the ones that perhaps are fragmentary and very tiny and at times invisible within the specific and within the individual. So for us, we own time, but also there are certain times that we can't own. When I arrived in this place, the legal time did not belong to me. The way I was made to wait, in fact, and this is very, very passive, and yet my response was to recount time, to take it from the camp and bring it to the UK and see whether these different varied times can start a conversation. And in fact, for me, there is no difference. I'm talking about it chronologically here between the refugee camp and the city of Oxford. Because here I also see how people, different refugee groups are treated and made to wait intentionally. But also at times we wait, we wait the prospect of also doing something in the future. And that is why this active pulse is always, always prevalent in waiting. And would I be able, please, uh, to read something that perhaps, and this is, it has to do with the, with the, with the encounter also with the immigration officer, but how these things which took place in the past are still happening now, if I may. And the title of this poem is Past Tense. They asked him to strip off all of his clothes while discussing his asylum claim. The uniform was loose on him, two sizes bigger, to accommodate his solitude. 
the being is being strangled somewhere nearby. On the way to court, they disposed of him and his documents. He never paid any attention to numbers. They called it his room so he could commit suicide in a private. The last time they called his name, he was not there. His shoes had new soles. He enjoyed photographing feet, including his own. His title was written in bold. His name looked faint. The interviewer failed to conjugate a verb in the past tense. He opted for the present tense instead. He saw term, terminate, and terminal on the same page. He landed unscathed. His only injury was mental. In the end, he claimed asylum. And I think that this also, these individual lines are also what they convey of fragmentariness is in fact also a response to the arbitrary in the asylum process and what happens when it comes to, to waiting and how asylum is also sadly and painfully is associated with madness. Thank you so much, uh, Yusuf. Um, I was thinking, listening to you, I was thinking about when you said um, uh, time as, as you know, in, in, in process of, of asylum, for example, we have uh, one side, we have migration agencies who, who uh, you know, for them time is, is in terms of, you know, calendar time, you know, chronological time, yeah. Years, weeks, months, uh, days. On the other side, we have the asylum seeker. And waiting is not, you know, um, what that period of waiting means for her or for him. Um, so, so, so this is, you know, the quantity of, of time and quality, quality of time, how, how, we can, how we can measure that, how we can approach that. Um, that that's, that's very interesting. Elena, I'm thinking in part also about your work on South-South mobilities. Um, and and your you talk very explicitly about anti-colonial decolonial approaches to this work, um, and I am uh, I guess moved by the how our conversation has also taken up the idea of camp as a space of belonging, um, and I but I wonder if um, and I don't mean to sort of presume any kind of like political views, but I'm in thinking about conversations around abolition border abolition, the abolition of detention spaces, perhaps then the possibility of not needing camps anymore, the, the abolition of camps. Um, I wonder how time might factor into the, or might, might give us some insight into the possibilities for these kinds of abolition. 
Thanks, Elena. I think I'll pick up time in relation to what history tells us about the erasure of camps and what time then tells us also about the ambiguities and the constitutive nature of destruction and of violence as well, and the extent to which abolition will only ever be partial unless, and I quote Yusuf from earlier, unless it's an abolition of the conditions that require camps rather than the abolition of camps themselves. So if we think, for example, of the Saloum border between Libya and Egypt, um, in 1995, um, 30,000 Palestinian refugees who were living in Libya at that time were um, expelled from Libya by Gaddafi um, in protest of the PLO's signing of the Oslo Accords. And that mass expulsion was accompanied by the construction of a great camp on the Saloum border between Libya and Egypt, um, which was named the Return Camp which again, return, temporal, spatial dynam uh, dynamics there. Now, those Palestinian returns, uh, sorry, those Palestinian refugees were unable to return to Gaza and Jericho, which had been the political intention of creating that camp. And that camp eventually was closed, but that closure was far from the end of the camp because at the outbreak of the 2011 Libyan war, which affected again over 50,000 to 70,000 Palestinians who were still working and living in, in uh, Libya at that time, several thousand Palestinians were once again left stranded on the Libyan-Egyptian border, including precisely at the Saloum crossing, where the re return camp of the 1995 era had been created. So the closure of the return camp in 1990s may have temporarily suspended that particular camp, but a new camp physically returned, it re-erupted in the same place at a different time. We can add to other examples, obviously Yadamuk camp, which has been um, viscerally central to understandings of um, the, the Syrian conflict and the symbol of the ongoing Palestinian catastrophe. But there are many other camps which are not so actively remembered. So we can add Tel Zatar camp and Nahadid Badid camp in, in Lebanon, both of which have been physically destroyed, raised to the ground and their residents displaced and yet remain both as spaces which are of great symbolic and political significance on individual and collective levels, but also have important afterlives. So this is both because of the insistence for example, of Yusuf's mother, of returning to visit the cemetery in Nahr al-Badid camp. And in fact, the protests that arose, not for people to live in the camp following its destruction, but to be able to visit the dead, to be able to visit the remains of those loved ones who still remained in spite of the physical erasure of that camp. So even if we think of the campicide, the, the death of the camp, in fact, through physical erasure and forced depopulation, that's far from an absolute process. And so I think that it's, it's problematic to declare the end of the camp, given what history has told us about when camps have been closed, including for political grounds, including for political grounds grounded effectively or officially on notions of solidarity with in this case, uh, in the case of um, Libya, in solidarity with Palestinians, that this would in fact lead to the return. It would re lead to a solution to the causes of displacement. External interventions of this form, I think, are, are, are problematic in, in many instances. And the abolition of the camp is insufficient if the broader conditions uh, requiring the camp remain unaddressed. 
but I know that there are multiple approaches to this and precisely being attentive to the power dimensions that exist and being attentive to, to who we are, again, in, in relation to um, such studies and um, attempts to understand and respond to displacement really have to come to the fore. And again, if we think about decisions having to be um, prioritised from the perspective of the people who are themselves living in and through those spaces. Thanks so much. Sharma, did you want to respond to Elena or also take up the question of time and abolition? No, I, I totally agree with, 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 with what um, she said, Elena said. Uh, yes, um, I mean, um, on the one hand, um, a, a true anti-colonial um, you know, uh, action should uh, target the, the reason of why people are in refugee situation firsthand. Uh, for example, there, there, there is a, a recent uh, report by Brown University. Uh, uh, I think that the title is The Cost of War, saying and showing with numbers that, that the, the war on terror has resulted in displacement of millions of people. Yeah, up to 30 million, I guess, if I remember correctly. I mean, and we are talking about a region, I mean, the Middle East, yeah? And the Middle East, uh, in terms when, 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 when I was listening the future imaginaries, yeah, is, is, you know, how can we, I mean, we, how can we isolate camps, refugees, displacement from other, you know, forces, uh, you know, broader, larger international geopolitical relations. I mean, environmental disasters, which is going on in, the, in that region and others, you know, and, and all these together, you know, history, historicized, yeah, historicized camps, historicized borders. And, and um, um, so if, if a, a true anti-colonial approach should, should pay attention to, to those um, um, aspects. Um, and I, I totally agree with Elena, you know, just removing camps or removing borders maybe is not the, 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 the true solution for people who are, you know, um, the victim of situation. I also want to, to say there is a recent publication by um, Sandy Hilal and, um, Alessandro Petty, I don't know if you know them. Uh, refugee heritage is, is about how, how camp and refugeeness should be part of, uh, you know, human heritage or something like that, yeah. Thank you. Um, Yusuf, would you be willing to read another poem and we might use this to round out our conversation then. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to read extracts uh, from uh, With a Third Eye, I See the Catastrophe, but also it touches on, on illness, on the pandemic in, in a camp. And uh, we talk about these illnesses and these very, uh, very serious ailments uh, within cities, but how we respond to, to, um, to pandemics in, in, uh, in refugee camps. 
and and this is in fact a rewriting i would say of of some of my mother's statements so i rely heavily on 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 words uttered by my mother so i have to acknowledge her as as also um the co-writer in a sense my mother is illiterate she can't read and she can't write but she is a poet nonetheless and uh, i um, and also i've written on co-seeing so i co-see uh, with her with a third eye i see the catastrophe i write the secret on the doorstep finding her way to the seeds that escaped her lap like the one who read the book son read my swollen legs another's land mother there is no longer time and the concealed in its place is its road to the thing these days her days are strange the evenings are stranger from the uttered to its evidence she loosens the crosses it cracks to hang her headscarf the disease is not yet here alongside our heavy hearts we have what will be flower beads of yeast whole and the crushed lentils potatoes the red soil to nurture escaping blessings in dryness by tomorrow by its disavowed promise we promise the disease what we have of wishes a camp big enough for death a camp with a fewer deaths he who is hardly awake shaves no more the mirror with severed edges bartered in shards between the suns those hushed over the shoulders of the almost identical curses has a new line from my my old grandmother's mirror the mirror of her beach closet the when she bought in the city for the camp my father in his spare time made us bespoke mirrors for our escaping faces as we wait for the disease in echoless rooms doors locked up shutters dusted the thrust to the heart the disease that will sign a pact with our diseases in patience bereft of patience we stand still behind our walls without seeing we shall see the disease that will be to my parents when this is over leave the dust incomplete in its time and return 
with a fewer limbs to your non-existent pastures. With a third eye, I see the catastrophe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Migrations, a world on the move, a podcast produced by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary, multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you'll also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us on Twitter at CornellMig. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migration's postdoctoral associate with the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Gayukono, the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett.